You can turn to John's Gospel for our New Testament reading. A short reading this morning. John chapter 19. We'll read verses 38 through 42. John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, They laid Jesus there. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn to Micah in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Lend your attention, this is the word of God. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Father, we, as your people, seek your blessing even now uh, to grant us understanding into your word that uh, your word might direct us aright, that it might build us up in hope. What a, a beautiful vision that your servant of old had given by you for the consolation of your people after the hard word which Micah had preached 
for a long season. How excellent are your gifts, O Lord. How vast, how innumerable, how precious. So we ask that you would press upon our hearts the infinite worth of your kingdom and your king. We might earnestly desire to abound in its fruit. That we might earnestly desire to see it advanced in the form of more and more coming to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. These things we ask in his name. Amen. Would you believe me if I said the future is bright? It doesn't feel like it, does it? Where do you look for signs of hope? Micah's hearers have been told of Israel's sin and of God's coming judgment. If Micah's original audience looked around, they wouldn't have seen much that met the naked eye that instilled in them much confidence. And so the question that comes to them in the wake of everything we've heard so far, which ended with a pretty dark note, you can recall verse 12, therefore because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. He's painted a comprehensive portrait of corruption. He's painted a comprehensive portrait of coming judgment. And Micah's audience, those who had ears to hear this word, reasonably are left asking, well, is there any hope? What what opens up beyond that? Is there a beyond that? That's a pretty desolate portrait of the future. Is there hope? And that question feels remarkably relevant right now, doesn't it? Is there hope? Maybe it's just me. Maybe you don't think about these things. (laughs) It feels like these days one piece of bad news quickly follows another. And even if there is a bit of good news, it's quickly followed by a swell of bad news. And this landscape, which again is very similar to the landscape that Micah's original hearers would have been aware of intensely, makes us vulnerable to discouragement, doesn't it? It leaves the soul incredibly exposed to, to some dark humors, dark dispositions, despair, turmoil, frustration. It's onto this landscape that Micah says, actually, there's hope. There's remarkable hope. And the reason there's hope is not because of what you can see with the naked eye. Not what the eye of senses impresses upon your soul. In fact, the hope opens up in a vision which is to be received by the eye of faith, which Micah sees with the eye of faith because he looks and he sees 
a city marked by corruption, the eye of sense. And then the Word of God tells him just beyond that, there's a city of destruction, which you can kind of feel coming. And then beyond that, a word of hope, (laughs) a word of glorious promise, a word of life and blessing and peace emanating from a mountain, secured by a word. And this he puts forward to God's people who very much on every side are beset by that which would otherwise give no hope. I don't know if their bank accounts were diving. I don't know if their Twitter feeds were lighting up with bits of bad news. But they certainly were struck by the corruption of man. They were certainly struck, in Micah's word, with the truth of God's judgment upon sin. But now, God would have them be struck with the wonders of his grace and his mercy, the wonders of his purposes for life that he freely gives and calls his people to wait for in faith. It's a beautiful picture, this mountain this kingdom, this pilgrimage, this peace. We do need to ask, don't we, what are are we looking at here? When is this going to happen? How is it going to happen? Because this is a pretty striking image. It's a picture of the future, but it comes to us in the categories of Micah's present. This is a vision of the future that Micah relays with the terms, the conditions, the symbols, the world of which Micah was an inhabitant and his hearers were inhabitants. E.J. Young, the Reformed Old Testament scholar, explains it this way. In speaking of the future... Micah, as a prophet of the Old Testament, uses the thought forms and the figures which were current in that age. It's obvious that the language of the prophet cannot be interpreted in a consistently literal sense. Rather, Micah takes the figures which were the property of the Old Testament and makes them the vehicles of expression for the truths of salvation and blessing which were to characterize the age of grace. That is, the church age. That is, our age. That is, the here and the now. And so we hear of an elevated mountain. We hear of a pilgrimage that all nations make. We hear of swords and spears being repurposed into farming tools. We hear of vineyards and fig trees flourishing. And we ask, do we expect the fulfillment to look like divine terraforming? Terraforming is when you change the landscape of the earth. You raise a mountain. Do we expect physical journeys as the fulfillment of this prophecy? Do we expect a return to warfare with swords and spears, just so they can be beaten into agricultural accoutrement? 
do we expect to return to agricultural lifestyle the world over just so we can have this fulfilled? Do we expect global climate change to support vineyards and fig trees the world over? Did you know that they can't exist everywhere? The answer, according to John Calvin and E.J. Young, is no. And that would be my position as well. That's a good representative of the majority opinion in Reformed theology. Instead, what we see here is spiritual blessing presented in physical terms current in Micah's time. The exaltation of a mountain is the exaltation of God's kingdom, His throne, true worship of the true and living God. We see Christians from every tribe and tongue and nation whom the Lord Jesus Christ draws to himself. We see peace with God announced by the Lord Jesus Christ, opening a vein of satisfaction, replacing the raging discontentment that characterizes the falling heart, which fuels so much of our human strife. And in the wake of this peace with God... We can pursue peace with one another and indeed benevolence towards one another as the full richness of God's gifts dawn upon our hearts. And from this position of security, we can devote ourselves to good. And this means partly that we don't have to wait for these blessings, that this portrait which is opened up, which is wonderful, it's glorious, it's hope filled and hope-filling. It's already dawned in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's good news. But there is a sense in which we, too, have to wait. We have to wait for the fullness of this picture to, to arrive, for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ brought the last days, the days which Micah here sees from afar. Jesus Christ has brought them, and these blessings have come to us in him, but we still enjoy them by faith. And so just like Micah calls his audience at the close to walk by faith, even though the eyes of sense see a reality that seems incongruous with this blessed picture, with this blessed God, the call is the same. We walk in the name of the Lord, even if other nations are walking in the name of their God. For the one who promised this is the Lord true and living God. And so we can also heed the call into faith that Micah closes with. But this morning we consider this mountain, this mountain of blessing, and what God is now doing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and what we're waiting for him to do in full when Christ returns. And so the first blessing, consider that God has promised to exalt his name. God has undertaken and has promised that he will exalt his name. That's how Micah opens. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. Who can raise a mountain? I mean, I think we're pretty impressive in our engineering feats these days, but the vision here and the assumption here is that what is going to come to pass is on par with the creation-level event. 
And the only one that can do this is the creator of heaven and earth. Here God has promised in the face of what's just transpired. We read it. You've desecrated my name. You, Israel, I gave you my name. I put my name on you. I put my name on the temple. I put my name on Zion. And you desecrated it. You bore false witness to my name. And because of that, I'm coming in judgment. And if he had left it there, it would have been just. It would have been fair. But he didn't leave it there because he had made a promise. He had made a promise that indeed his dwelling would be on earth with men. And so he promises here that in the wake of this judgment, in the wake of this wooded height, something new would emerge. He himself would magnify his name. He would exalt his name. He would make known the excellencies of his name as his mountain stands supreme. As his name stands supreme. We're supposed to hear a couple of echoes from Scripture in this. Recall the Tower of Babel. When men labored to reach the skies. They gathered on the plains of Shinar. They said, we're very impressive, we are. And they were. God acknowledges it. He says, what aren't they going to be able to accomplish? This is remarkable. So they gather there on the plains of Shinar to build a mountain to scale heaven. Why? To know God in truth? No. What do they say? Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's establish our name. Let's exalt our name. We know what resulted. God came in judgment. The same thing happened in Jerusalem. It wasn't let's exalt the name of the Lord as we in faith walk in accord with his word as we showcase to all of these pagan nations the excellency of having the true and living God near, the excellence of having his rules and statutes govern our life, which will be known as wisdom and righteousness and excellence in the eyes of all who see us walking in this way. Instead, what? No, the kingdom of man was exalted. Greedy hearts, cruel hearts, deceptive hearts. The kingdom of man was exalted. And what does he say? I'm going to make it a wooded height. Because that's the end of the kingdom of man when it's held to the bar of God's judgment. So something new must take place. And that's what he promises to do something new, something which he himself will undertake. For what was a mountain other than just an impressive geographical feature? Again, we have to lean into the symbolism of the Old Testament world. A mountain was where heaven met earth. A mountain was a site of worship. A mountain was the throne of God. How could such a thing be established from earth to heaven? It can't. (laughs) So what does God say? It says he will establish this nexus. He will establish his kingdom on earth. He will establish his throne. When? In the last days. Micah glimpses a future that's veiled when you consider what human potentiality opens up. It's not something that will organically and naturally come about. 
as man taps his full potential. We saw what the full potential of man is on the plain of Shinar. It's remarkable, but it's fueled by hubris, and it will end in judgment. Here Micah says the last days will open up a new work where God acts in this way, where he does something different, something new that human beings otherwise can't do. He undertakes this for the glory of his name. Are we looking for a mountain? I'm going to establish this link between heaven and earth that shows that all other worship is a pale substitute. All other thrones are imposters, foul, pitiful. All of this on this true mountain. Are we looking for a mountain? The Samaritan woman was, remember, John 4. Is it on this mountain or is it on that mountain that we're going to worship, she asks. What does Jesus say? (laughs) The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, that mountain, will you worship the the Father. The hour is coming and now is here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus says, these days are here and you're not looking for a mountain, you're looking for me, the truth. You're looking for me, the one who will pour out the Spirit from on high, for he's been given to me without measure. You're looking for me, for no one approaches the Father except through me. You're looking for me, for he has given me a name that is above every name, for at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. You're looking for me. You're looking for the true temple. You're looking for the true link between heaven and earth. You're looking for what God did in infinite grace when he sent forth his beloved son such that all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You're not looking for a mountain. You're looking for Jesus, the link, the condescension, the riches of grace and mercy poured out upon a world that deserved to end in a wooded curse, a mount of forsakenness. But instead, the Lord Jesus Christ was raised up, and in so doing, he draws all peoples to himself. And that's the next blessing that Micah here highlights. He says, all peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. What happened at Sinai? remember Sinai? What happened at Mount Sinai where they encountered the true and living God? I have nightmares about Sinai. (laughs) Partly because I got to see something of Sinai. I told you this story. Living in Southern California, the wildfires were remarkable. I worked at this retirement home and I went up on the roof and there was a mountain next door and the wildfires had consumed this mountain and it was literally a mountain on fire that I was looking at. Like the mountain was on fire. And that's the closest in my experience I've ever gotten to Sinai, where it was literally a mountain engulfed by a storm, rock, pulsing flame. And what do the Israelites say? I'm not going near that. That would be a mistake to draw near. You go near, we're falling back. An unmitigated picture of the holiness of God, a consuming fire for a sinner, rightfully elicits fear. 
trembling for who can stand in the presence of this consuming God. But Micah visions a different mountain. He envisions a different response. Instead of, we got to get out of here, what are they saying? We got to get over there. We got to draw near. We have to go to this mountain. And it's kind of an unnatural action. You can hear it. He says he's going to exalt the mountain. He's going to raise this mountain. And then the peoples are going to flow up it? I don't know a lot about a lot. But I don't think rivers flow up a mountain. This is a drawing of people unto himself. This is a God who brings people near out of the abundance of his goodness and grace and mercy. The contrast here is people glimpsing blessing and being drawn unto it as God magnifies his name. The Italian painter Caravaggio had a tumultuous life. He's one of the finest painters in Italian history. And he had to flee Rome, and then he fled Naples, and he found his way to the little island of Malta. And in this tumultuous flight there on Malta, he painted an incredibly famous painting, The Beheading of John the Baptist. There, this little island rendered this remarkable work. And it's said that painters came from far and wide just to see the miracle of Caravaggio's work. That's what they called it. They called it a miracle. The miracle of Caravaggio's work. They just wanted to look upon the wonder of what this old master had produced. People will still go out of their way to see a wonder. Samantha and I drove from Southern California to Washington, D.C. We drove hours out of the way just to stop at the Grand Canyon. We're probably never going to be back here. we got to see this thing. We went out of the way, and our only regret was that we didn't have more time to gaze upon this wonder. Micah says, in the last days, people are going to draw near, not to a beautiful painting, not to a wonder of this creation, but to new creation, to the resurrected Christ, to the exalted Lord. Sinners are brought near. And it's not through a compromise of those standards of holiness which sent people fleeing from Mount Sinai. It's in an exaltation of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as our mediator. And that's exactly what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. But now, now, last days, now, they've dawned. It was then, now it's now. That was then, this is now. Now, in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Atonement, full atonement, can it be? Full satisfaction of the law. Full removal of that which sent us fleeing in the face of this holy God. Now, he came and he preached peace. To you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jew and Gentile alike, Christ came and he preached peace. The holiness of God hasn't changed. 
The righteousness of God hasn't changed, which considered in and of itself rightly sends sinners fleeing. What changed? It's the arrival of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's the arrival of the fulfillment of God's promises to dwell in peace with His people, ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is wonderful news. Because it means that there is nothing that disqualifies you from being brought near. There is no earthly consideration that disqualifies someone from being brought near. For he came to preach peace to Jew and Gentile alike, rich and poor alike, high and low alike, slave and free alike. Male and female alike. Adults and children alike. The only thing they all have in common, they're all sinners for whom he shed his blood. So the only consideration which properly confronts your heart is, am I a sinner? And you all answer that question, yes. And then we gaze upon the provision that God has made for sinners to bring us near. Nothing disqualifies anyone from being brought near. For this very reason, Christ drew near. And once you've been brought near, you taste of his excellencies. You're given a new appetite, which replaces the former appetite, which was nothing but trouble. So we can see next that in this blessed mountain, God's word rules. That's what Micah goes on to say. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. Consider the former things in Jerusalem, where the one thing that everybody had in common was that they despised the word of God. It seems like you couldn't find a rank or an office that wasn't actively despising the word of God. Remember? Priests, what do they teach for? Cash. Prophets, what do they prophesy for? Cash. Judges, what do they judge for? Cash. Despising the word of God, every single one of them, both in terms of the requirements for the office and the content which ought to have been distributed freely as that which fills the office. A bunch of them, malcontents, all of them towards the word of God, but not here. That was then. This is now. What's now? Because God is exalted, God's word is exalted. For it's understood that it reflects God, it's from God, and everything from him is most excellent. And so the law goes forth, the word goes forth, the judgments of the Lord are prized. Micah sees a day when people finally have eyes to see and ears to hear. That God's word is wisdom and righteousness and the riches of grace and mercy. In God's truth, there is life and blessing. Micah pictures a day when people have the eyes to see and a heart which yearns to feast upon a portion of life. Psalm 19 is in a similar vein. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. We've spoken on at least one occasion of the Tolstoy effect. How once you read him, it becomes to return to lesser novels. You finish War and Peace and you think, I'll never love again. And then you perk up a bit because you realize you've still got Anna Karenina. But this then only confirms that all other novelists are imposters. You can take heart, beloved, if you get through those two magnificent works, because in God's Word we have something that is even more excellent still. For as stimulating and delightful as the pages of Tolstoy are, they can't bring you life. They don't bring that light of the last things, that light of new creation, that light of resurrection life that comes only in God's Word. That's what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The Lord has brought us near. He's caused us to be born again. He's given us the eyes to see the excellence of his name, the excellence of his provision in the Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness and the righteousness and the peace which he and he alone can bring. And Peter says, you're like newborn babes now. And what do you want? You want to live. You want this life to grow and to thrive and to flourish, this new gift of salvation, this new gift of life which he's imparted freely. And what does he draw our attention to? The excellencies of God that continue to come to us in his word as he is exalted, as his truth is exalted, as his name is exalted, as his ways are exalted. And this coming forth from willing hearts. You can hear in Micah's passage that the former ways which seemed to be marked by one person stirring up another person unto corruption and sin are here replaced with the stirring up of one another unto truth, obedience. This is a community here that is so struck by the word of God, so struck by their God, so struck by the provision of God that they earnestly desire that all become a participant in it. They're speaking the truth to one another in love. Far from the former ways of saying, let's see how much evil we can do. Let's see how much darkness we can imbibe. Let's pervert every good thing into evil and ill. Remember, that was what they were doing. Now, Mike envisions a day where one person says to another, come on, let's go learn from the Lord. Come on, let's go, let's go learn how to walk in His ways. Come on, let's, let's learn how to submit to His judgments because all of them are right and good. And holy. And this is what the new creation heart says. It's what our heart says by the power of the Spirit as we pray, not my will, but yours be done. 
Finally, the the will of God is prized, even in part, even though it's partial, even though we're trying to get that part of us stronger, it's there. And for people who were only ever concerned with my will be done, my will be done, my will be done, it's remarkable that any of us in any semblance of truth would ever utter, thy will be done. I belong to you. Send me where you would have me go. Help me to lean not on my own understanding. Help me in all my ways to acknowledge you. Thy will be done. I am your servant. The vision of blessing that Mike anticipates has dawned and that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us new eyes to see and a new appetite for the word of God and the will of God to come to pass. And this is attended by a remarkable provision of peace and blessing. This is the last vision of his excellent mountain. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. In California, we actually had our own vine and fig tree. Um, We lived in a house. You looked in the back, there was a fig tree. In the back, there was a vine, yielded grapes. And so I said, mission accomplished. I'm all done. The picture here isn't of every person having a literal vine and a literal fig tree. These are the choicest gifts of life here, presented in the terms and the conditions of the covenant that Israel knew. They knew that the blessings of rain, the blessings of sun, the blessings of agricultural yield could only come from the Lord. And even those things weren't the end of the story. For they understood that those things portended an even greater blessing, an even richer provision. It's not a coincidence that Paul highlights that the choice gifts that pass to us as we are joined to the vine are reasonably construed as very good fruit. (laughs) The fruit of the Spirit. Signs of life evidence of that eschatological life, that new creation life, that resurrection life which have passed unto us, which we experience not as that delicious fig and those usually tart grapes that I ate in my backyard in Escondido, California, but rather in the form of faith, hope, love, fruit issuing forth from hearts joined to the true vine as his resurrection life is at work in us now such that whatever the context, whatever the circumstances are which will continue to attest to the fallenness of this creation, the fallenness of this age that is passing away, the corruption of hearts writ large and will continue to do so until Christ returns and makes all things new. But even still, that new creation fruit characterizes the heart of those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ such that we can say blessed be the name of the Lord. My hope is in the name of the Lord. And out of that contentment it's a portrait of contentment here what opens up? Hostility is replaced with benevolence. The strife which characterize human existence taken up sword and spear 
Those weapons are laid down. And what are taken up? Instruments of life. Because of the provision that God has made. And the contentment that attends hearts and minds that finally see that the choicest portion that one can be given is not agricultural yield, but it's belonging to the true and living God. The choicest portion is not a mound of gold or a horde of donkeys or a brooding herd. It's the Holy Spirit, which is the very promise confirmed that we are his people, and he is our God. Would that we had the eyes to see the blessing that we have been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. For if this shone in its true light, we would willingly yield ourselves as servants of one another. We would readily yield ourselves to pursuing the good of others, for our lot has fallen to us in a pleasant place indeed. Micah envisions this day of not just having the choicest portion, but of seeing and understanding that we have a choice portion. And from this position, laboring for the good of our neighbors in benevolence. It's a day that's still far off for Micah, and that's how he closes. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. He says, look around, it's not like this yet. An Israelite in that day wouldn't even have to look beyond the borders of Israel to be struck with, not now, not right now. But still, the certainty of this portrait, that's what it says, right? For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. What guarantees that it's going to happen? God has promised that it's going to happen. The maker of heaven and earth has said it's going to happen. You can be sure that it's going to happen, oh my people, and what? ought to be the response of the heart. What's the response that Micah here anticipates? We will walk in the name of this God, even though what our eye sees doesn't quite align with this portrait that we've been told, which is to say we'll walk by faith and not by sight until this day dawns. We're in a better position than them, for the day has dawned in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has been exalted over every other imposter. People confess Jesus Christ is Lord from every tribe and tongue and nation. Peace with God has been proclaimed, and in the household of God, the effect of that peace is legitimately considering someone before myself, considering how I serve you in the Lord because of the way that Jesus Christ has served me. We have tasted of these blessings, even such that Jesus Christ can say, I have conquered death and Hades. Don't fear. Micah says on that day, even that which terrifies them is going to be removed. Jesus Christ says, the most terrifying thing for you has been removed. These blessings have dawned in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean faith is done away with? No. And so the call that Micah issues to his people is the same thing that he issues to us. We don't see these things in full. We taste of them by faith. But we know, not just because God has promised that they will come to pass, 
but because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And because Jesus Christ has taken his place at the right hand of the Father. And so the call for us is we too walk in the name of this Lord, Jesus Christ, even though everything around us still might attest to a contrary reality. May he give us the faith to do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this vision of loveliness. We are prone to discouragement in these days, Lord. We're prone to look in the wrong places for hope, but your word tells us where our hope is and where we are to set our hope. It is upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the consummation of these promises which have already dawned and his return to make all things new, to make that which we know by faith the truth of what we see by sight. Father, enable us to set our hope entirely upon the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ and tasting of these excellencies, Lord. Posture us in love towards not just the household of faith, but to our neighbors, our unbelieving family and friends. For this is the good effect of seeing that our portion is secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name.